Alrighty, folks. Uh, it is uh, the beginning of February uh, when we're having this conversation. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of great people named Jim in history. There's Jim Carrey. <laughs> there's Jim, uh, Jim Henson. Jim Plunkett. Uh, Jim Harbaugh of the of now of the Los Angeles Chargers, near and dear to yeah, my heart. And one of, one of my favorite people named Jim is Jim Dempsey, who's here today. Jim uh, is a, 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 a huge influence on my thinking around cyber regulation, uh, around rulemaking, around the state of cybersecurity strategy nationally in the United States. He's written an excellent book. Cybersecurity Law Fundamentals, which I keep on my desk as a reference, I use all the time. Uh, he's a common uh, or a frequent guest on one of my favorite podcasts, the Cyber Law Podcast, uh, and he's here with us today to dive into a doozy of a topic around uh, rulemaking, cyber regulation, uh, so on and so forth. So, Jim, maybe you can familiarize the audience with uh, who you are and and uh, what you do. Well, first of all, Jacob and Jason, let me say how much I'm thrilled to be on the podcast. Uh, Jacob, I follow you, you know your stuff on LinkedIn, on CMMC and um, federal uh, cybersecurity standards for contractors generally. Just awesome stuff. I don't know of anybody who is so clear and able to simultaneously get so deep into the intricacies and at the same time simplify um, what's going on and, and, and tr basically trying to talk sense to people, uh, because there is a Thank lot of, very much. there is a lot of FUD, uh, around, uh, cybersecurity standards for government contractors, particularly in DOD. And so I'm just, uh, thrilled to be with you. I always learn a lot from reading your posts. I'm a lawyer, um, uh, in another a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I actually did government contracting when I was a baby lawyer at the law firm of Arnold and Porter, and I actually enjoyed it. I enjoy contracts. I enjoy sort of trying to read a document and anticipate what it's going to mean as it plays out in practice, uh, which is really what you're supposed to do as a lawyer. And um, But I've been in the sort of cybersecurity space probably only for about, oh, eight years or so. I started teaching a course at Berkeley Law School on cybersecurity law back before the day. Uh, there weren't, I don't, don't think anybody else, I'm not sure, teaching cybersecurity law when I started. Uh, as you say, since then, I've got the book, um, self-promo. I'm uh, just about to start the editing or um, copy editing process on volume number two, edition oh, number two. Yeah, we'll uh, link to that for sure. And, so find you it. know, there's stuff happening in this field all the time, uh, right. particularly when you get away from the government contracting field, which is dynamic enough. But then you start talking about breach litigation, uh, cybercrime, the national security authorities that the government invokes in terms mm -hmm. of the Defense Production Act authorities. Uh, the um, I know you just you just recently wrote a, a, a an essay on software liability. Yep. Uh, there was recently a decision regarding uh, cyber insurance. You know, I yep. mean, it's just a, a very very dynamic space. Yeah. It's and, exciting, exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like I like I tell people, it's a common topic on this podcast. It's a common topic in our content. I post about it all the time. Uh, there really is no understanding what's going on with CMMC and the requirements that it assesses, and so on and so forth without understanding these 
defense contracts and by extension, the regulations that impose them and the rulemaking that creates exactly. those regulations. Exactly. And apparently, apparently what's going on uh, now is there is a massive potential sea change happening at the Supreme Court level regarding uh, how the court interacts with statutes, interacts with federal agencies. I mean, this is going to, this is bringing up, I'm hearing people talk about uh, this is a delegation of powers problem. This is a separation of powers problem. This is like big picture, highest level. What does the judiciary do? What does the executive branch do? What does the legislature do? And uh, like I said, it's becoming a, 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 like we were talking about earlier, it's becoming a more and more common topic because people are hearing about this case in the Supreme Court and they're extrapolating that perhaps it might have some sort of impact down the road on things as specific as CMMC. So we would love it if you could tell us what the heck is going on uh, and how should people think about what's going on? Because for all intents and purposes, it seems like there's quite a revolution in legal thought happening out there. Before he jumps into that, usually, Jacob, the things that we have to say on topics like this, we have to follow the statement with saying, we are not lawyers. We right? are not. We're, yeah, well, I'm, I'm here to learn. This is this Jim, is, Jim yeah. came out of the gate. And he goes, I'm a lawyer. I, so I, I'm expecting this to be extremely spicy right now. Yeah. I just want to strap in. Let us know what's up, Jim. All right. But guys, I'm not going to send you a bill after this. OK, <laughs> All right. Well, that's why that's why you got to plug the book. That, right, right. That's how this works out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so we're going to talk law, but I'm not going to practice law okay, on this sure. podcast. Okay. Okay. Um, so you know, Jacob, I, let's just dive in right now and put this term out there, and then we can circle around to it multiple times. Chevron deference. And this is Chevron, the company. Chevron, the company, although... Like the gas company. Exactly. And um, really, okay. it's the name of a case. Okay. 1984, okay. Supreme Court decision, Chevron versus NRDC, National Resources Defense uh, C Committee. And at issue was a question of the interpretation of the Clean Air Act which uh, had been around for a number of years. And the government, the EPA, issued an interpretation of the Clean Air Act in which it um, defined what is a stationary source. That is, that the statute included this two words, stationary source, and said that you regulate stationary sources of pollution, and the goal is, is to basically decrease the overall amount of pollution being pumped into the air. Okay. The government actually had one rule that said uh, any new component being added to a factory or other facility was a stationary source, and each new stationary source, each new component needed to meet the uh, pollution standards. Okay. They then changed that rule. The new administration came in, changed the rule, and said, no, 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 um, we're going to look at the whole plant. We're going to look at the entire facility as the stationary source. And if you add new components, 
but at the same time, you reduce the pollution of existing components. And if the overall impact is not negative, then you're compliant with the act. So the question in the case was, in interpreting this law, should the government adopt a whole facilities interpretation of stationary source? Or does it have to look at each discrete piece of equipment inside a major facility? Okay. That could have a big impact, I think, on- Which could have a big impact on regulated entities, because then it means every time they add a new component to the, to the plant, they've got to get new approval or new review. Yeah. The Supreme Court came up with a formulation that has since become known as the Chevron Doctrine after this case. And the doctrine is a doctrine of statutory interpretation, but it is also a doctrine of, as you said in the intro, Jacob, separation of powers. And what is the uh, constitutional role of the three branches of government? Easy stuff. (laughs) Easy stuff. But until you get into the details. Right. And the Supreme Court said, we're going to have a two-step process. First, we're going to read the statute. If the statute is clear, end end of debate. Congress makes the laws. We, the judiciary, apply them. And um, if the statute is clear, that's the end of the story. And we're going to read the whole statute and lots of debates about how you interpret statutes. I love all these rules that exist around statutory interpretation. But if you come to the end of the day and you say the statute's clear, end of case. Okay. Whatever the court says at that point, which is their interpretation of whatever Congress said, that's the law. Which I think is probably the standard way people have been taught to expect that things would function. It's the schoolhouse rock sort of vanilla way. That's right. Okay. That's right. But Congress isn't always clear. Congress is ambiguous. Now, you know, I see see you both sort of making funny faces like, oh, surprise, surprise. But let me say, say. (laughs) no, let me say, guys, I worked on, on Capitol Hill for 10 years and it is not easy to draft a statute, okay? And, you know, um, oh, here's one case. Um, The Federal Communications Act says that the FCC, of course, must grant various licenses for the operation of radio and TV uh, broadcast transmissions. And the statute says that um, the FCC must act on applications within a reasonable time. Mm -hmm. Well, what is reasonable? But how did they get there? You know, I could, I I was in those kinds of meetings. Someone says, oh, we got to make six months. FCC must act within six months. And then someone else pipes up and says, yeah, but some of these applications are really complicated. The the thing may be hundreds of pages long. Some of these take years to decide. And then so someone says, well, okay, let's, let's, let's give them a, a break, say two years. And then someone else pipes up and says, no, no, two years, two years is way too long. Some of these applications are actually very simple and we want them to act quickly. Let's make it nine months. And someone else says, no, nine months is too short or too long. And it goes back and forth for six months. And then they say, we got to get this bill done. Let's just say reasonable time. 
which the agency must a, act within a reasonable time. That seems like a, pardon the pun here, it seems like a reasonable idea to say, make it reasonable. I mean, isn't this sort and, of- And like, reasonableness is intended to right. incorporate the totality of the circumstances and each case is going to be different. But Sounds like but, periodically, right? We, it, we deal with that right now, periodically. Periodically, you have yeah. to assess systems in cybersecurity. So. Exactly. And what is periodic? Well, it's going to depend system to system, threat environment, et cetera. What regulations? So you see how Congress goes to these ambiguous terms. Sure. And what Chevron said was in 1984, when Congress does this and it grants authority to a regulatory agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Congress, the Federal Communications Commission, the Food and Drug Administration, when it grants authority to implement the statute and to enforce the statute, and the agency makes a decision, particularly if the agency goes through a rulemaking process and they get comments and they put out a draft and they get evidence and they consider and balance all of the competing interests at stake, and they come up with a reasonable interpretation of reasonableness or a reasonable interpretation of the statute, the Supreme Court said, we're going to defer to the agency. Okay. If we had been sitting there, we might have done it differently. Um, there are multiple reasonable ways to interpret the statute. But so long as the agency acted with a reasonable interpretation, we are going to defer to the agency. Now, um, for e recent years, this has become a real sticking point, particularly for conservatives, particularly for those sort of opposed to the, the regulatory state and saying this is basically a surrender of power to these regulatory agencies. Well, and, and uh, I, I hope you, I, just let me jump in here really yeah. fast. My sort of background reading and research, which will link to several resources if people want to learn more, is, a, is not a political show, but there is a fun irony to point out in the sense that my understanding is that when this case was decided, it was actually a conservative court at the time that was sort of uh, the, the the they wanted to have the uh, agencies at the behest of the executive branch to to make decisions to deregulate and you know in this EPA sense exactly and then as the uh, unintended consequences of Chevron uh, expanded over time, which I think it's one of the most commonly cited cases. Yep. In administrative law, now you have agencies that are using it to regulate, and a conservative court is going, well, that's not really what we meant. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And uh, a couple weeks ago, January 17th, just to fast forward here to where we are today, uh, January 17th, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in two parallel cases, uh, one called Relentless Inc. Incorporated uh, versus Department of Commerce, and one called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo, Secretary of Commerce Raimondo. And okay. they are similar cases regarding uh, both the same statute. The 1976 Magnuson Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act. Now, um, fishing has always been subject, long, long, long subject to federal regulation. Uh, but there was massive overfishing in the 60s uh, and into the 70s. And there was a possibility that some critical fish, including the herring, would crash and that all the 
fishermen would go out of business because all the, the fish wouldn't be reproducing. So Congress adopted uh, this comprehensive federal uh, rule to license and regulate fishermen. So commercial fishermen have to get fishing licenses just like you and I would have to get a fishing license if we were going fishing in a state park or uh, the crabbers down here off the beach in uh, San Francisco have to get a license in order to catch crabs. And they statute established a system of monitoring. Uh, that is, you monitor um, how much fish a particular fisherman under his license takes in. And it set up a program of federally funded observers, they're called. And the goal was to get a federally funded observer on 50% of the fishing boats that went out. Sort of a spot check program, but pretty, pretty serious, 50%. Sure. Although it had huge exceptions. I mean, there was an exception. Observers were not required for trips intended to land less than 50 metric tons of herring, which sounds to me like a lot of fish. But anyhow, um, the goal was to put an observer on 50% of the boats. And then the statute, uh, but, but then the problem arose, well, we actually don't have enough funds to fund enough federally funded observers to go on the boats. So the um, fish management agency, the National uh, Marine and uh, Fisheries uh, Service, set up a program requiring some of the fishing boats to hire their own observers mm -hmm. to go out on the boat. Uh, it ended up in this case, actually, that the government reimbursed all the fishermen for all the costs. But um, uh, some of the fishermen were upset that they were being forced to basically hire someone to enforce the statute. And they said, well, if the government's going to enforce it, the government should pay through the tax system and not put, put it on us, the fishermen. And that's the case that is now before the Supreme Court. Was the National Marine Fisheries um, Service correct in filling a gap in the statute. The statute said nothing about how these observers were to be hired. It said nothing uh, explicit about how this was going to be funded. But this was a very complicated rule, lots of interest. Uh, actually, there's deep engagement of the fishing industry and the fishermen in the development of the management system around fisheries. But um, at the end of the day, they had, the administration, the, the, the fish, uh, Marine Fisheries Service adopted a rule. And these commercial fishermen challenged the rule. Mm -hmm. And at the lower court level, the rule was upheld. And it was held, upheld on the Chevron deference. Now, let's and pause for a second. That, and just to make, let me just make sure that I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm following. So there's this so there's this level of ambiguity in this fishing uh, statute, and then the agency uh, interprets the uh, ambiguity here and comes up with a decision. Exactly. There's, a, there's a lawsuit. And then the lower court says, well, according to Chevron deference, 
if there's ambiguity, we are going to default to the agency. We're not going as the court to read what that ambiguity, uh, what exactly. we think it would have meant. And then, exactly. and then it was appealed to the Supreme Court on this question of who ought to be the ones to right. interpret the ambiguity. So that's and where- And in this case, it, it went even beyond any ambiguity. I mean, it was just a flat out gap. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, some of the Chevron cases are true um, ambiguity. Where they, they, I think the term is, they're just purely silent is the term that they use, or does it, there's just, there isn't an ambiguity, you know, amb, ambiguous term. It just doesn't say anything at all. Exactly. In the decision. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Now, okay. It, it, again, it was clear. Now, again, there's some Chevron deference cases that are true um, ambiguity cases. Uh, oh, a case in 2005 on regulation of cable broadband. Um, right. The Federal Communications Act says that the FCC shall apply common carrier requirements to telecommunications services. And then that begged the question, and that was, of course, language probably from the ninth. Well, it was it was language at the very early stages of the internet, and um, cable wasn't even offering internet when this was written. And so, what does telecommunication services mean? Does telecommunication services include um, internet broadband provided over cable? Mm-hmm. So that was an ambiguity. Uh, uh, this, oh, there's, you know, the, the reasonable time case I mentioned right. or Chevron itself, what is a statutory source? And but in just, other cases, uh, as you say, yeah, just the, to zoom out, I mean, like you're saying, this covers everything from environmental questions to telecommunications questions to permitting issues to, I mean, you know, there's rulemaking and interpretation on everything, which means this is a big deal, right? It is a huge, huge deal. And uh, at least some of the tea leave readings from the oral argument that was held by the Supreme Court on January 17th, I think a number of observers walked away concluding that Chevron was going to be overruled. Uh, Some others walked away thinking, well, it might survive in some form or another. Um, If it is overruled, the Supreme Court will end up articulating or expressing a different rule. Mm-hmm. for how you deal with this. So it it it's going to be messy one way or the other. I mean, unless they give a straight straight affirmance and, and keep Chevron, which I'm sort of doubting they'll do. They'll tinker with it in some way. So that will throw into question uh, literally thousands of rulemakings, particularly rulemakings a year, because as I said before, the legislative process drives you often to this kind of ambiguity. Right. And so the argument um, against Chevron is um, goes back to 1803, Marbury versus Madison, uh, one of the seminal cases in our history where uh, the Supreme Court said it is the province of the courts to say what the law is. And that courts interpret the law. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't defer to administrative agencies to interpret the law. Right. The that's courts not, that's not written in, down anywhere, right? That's, the courts should interpret the law. Conversely, of course, the supporters of Chevron say, look, the last thing you want is courts 
diving into all of these incredibly complicated statutory structures. I mean, there was a case on the Food and Drug Act um, at the uh, circuit court level, the appellate court level, involving the exclusivity of uh, drug approvals and this cons complicated question of if one drug is approved and then the second one comes along, uh, can the first drug block the second drug from being approved or can the second drug rely upon uh, the um, research and um, results of the testing on the first drug? And it comes down to this whole question of uh, the phrase active moiety, moiety, M-O-I-E-T-Y. I actually had to look it up too. It turns out that moiety simply means part. And in chemistry, it means part of a molecule. And I, I, must, at, have, I must have missed that day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, that. I missed that day in, in chemistry too. Um, but it came down to this question of, do you look at the whole drug or do you look at individual components of the drug? Um, and it's literally, literally a, a molecular debate. Here. How do you, you know, the notion that courts would try to start figuring that out in the context of a statute, which is already extremely complicated and where uh, the agency has made many sort of risk benefit trade-offs and has developed this sort of complicated structure for drug approvals. Is that really the kind of thing where you want the court saying, uh, no, uh, we know better um, what is an active moiety mm -hmm. in a particular uh, drug? So there's arguments on both sides. I see the arguments on both sides. And let's bring it now to CMMC. Okay. So what I see as the connection between Chevron deference and uh, CMMC goes directly to the, to the case. So the um, fisheries service said, basically, you, the regulated entity, must pay for the cost of your, and let's turn it to CMMC words, your certification. Mm -hmm. So we're moving from a self-attestation to a certification process. And right. for some contractors, we're moving to a third party certification process. And so superficially, I think you could say, well, wait a minute now, the Department of Defense has promulgated this rule through an amendment to the DFARS that will, or it's in the process of uh, finalizing a, a uh, amendment to the DFARS that will require government contractors to pay for the cost of their own certification as to whether they meet the standards of, um, of the relevant uh, the relevant standard, whether it's right. SP-171. You got to pay for the phishing observers. You got to pay for the cybersecurity auditors. You got to, right. right? Somewhat similar. Right. right. Now, I think that all collapses. <laughs> um, I think it collapses. Uh, and bottom line is I, I just don't see Chevron. Even if, even, if, even if these current cases were to come out with a total elimination of the Chevron doctrine, I think the government contracting context and the cybersecurity context for CMMC is very, very different. First of all, remember, CMMC 
is about the protection of government information. Mm, okay. Government information, unclassified government information, classified information is subject to a different regime. Sure. Unclassified government information that the government provides to the contractor in the course of carrying out uh, the contract in which the government says, you, contractor, must protect this information. Right. There's a provision, there's a clause, there's another provision, there's another clause. They've, they've really started to stack these out there to let them know you're going to get this data and there are requirements. There. And it's our own data. Mm-hmm. So the notion that the government cannot set rules for the protection of the government's own data um, seems to me far-fetched. Sure. Secondly, of course, um, this is a procurement. And uh, this is what Stuart Baker referred to in a recent podcast as the golden rule. He who has the gold sets the rule. So as a government contractor, you are subject to all kinds of requirements. Right. Um, And you are required to jump through all kinds of hoops. This is, uh, I think we've talked about this briefly in the past, known as procurement power, literally, in the sense exactly the government can sort of force things to happen, even though they don't have this explicit power, just because they're the ones that buy stuff. You know, and if the government is buying a, a, a transport airplane and it says, um, you know, the airplane has to be capable of carrying six tanks, six Abrams tanks. Somebody can't come in and say, oh, my airplane only carries five tanks. Um, I should be allowed to bid on this contract or I should have my my contract bid considered. No, the government gets to set the rules um, for its own uh, contract. Sure. And then thirdly, I think it's a debate and it's on depths and depths and depths here that I don't purport to be an expert on. But I think that the costs of compliance with CMMC are going to be allowable mm-hmm. under the contract. I mean, Katie Arrington, a couple of years ago, when she first rolled out uh, CMMC 1, I guess it was, or maybe it was 2.0, but she said the costs of um, CMMC compliance will be allowable. Correct. Um, if you can identify them, if you can segregate them, if you can identify them with the government contract and right. uh, account for them appropriately, then they will be allowable. Yeah. They will be allowed. So in a way, you've got a situation where, yeah, the government is making you jump through hoops, but at the same time, the government is going to compensate you for jumping through those hoops as they compensate you for doing other things where they're asking you to produce a product that goes above and beyond the normal commercial uh, standards. Right. right. Um, now, so I, I, I think that the, because CMMC arises in the procurement mm-hmm. context um, and because government contractors are expected to do all kinds of uh, things above and beyond what a commercial contractor might do in a purely B2B uh, context, I, I just think that Chevron rise or fall overturned or not, is not going to be relevant here. Right. Now, I've seen I've seen some people I've seen some people sort of discussing it at a high level where they say, well, 
the the section of the FY20 NDAA that directs the DOD to create a framework is ambiguous. And uh, the DOD's interpretation of that language to create CMMC is a step too far because Chevron, therefore, it's doomed. Yeah. And when I read that section of the FY20 NDA, it doesn't strike me as ambiguous in the same way that these other cases uh, that that invoke Chevron seem to be ambiguous. Well, not only that, Jacob, but um, and it specifically talks about, I mean, that language that you're referring to specifically talks about uh, that the government shall develop a, a comprehensive framework, which shall include standards, regulations, metrics, ratings, third party certifications or requirements to be imposed on the defense industrial base. So that this, this probably wouldn't get out of what's known as Chevron step one, right? That's is not, it ambiguous. Right. Moreover, though, um, I'm not even sure, Jacob, I'm not even sure that the government would rely on that NDAA language. Um, I think the government would, because the government started down the road of CMMC before that language was adopted. Mm -hmm. Uh, That language, in fact, um, codified, I think, what was already underway. And I think that was intended certainly for Congress to put its imprimatur on and to sort of give a push to what the uh, Defense Department was already trying to do. Uh, they've been trying for years, obviously, to enforce uh, the clause in the DFARS, which has been there, as you keep pointing out, for quite a while, uh, saying that you must comply with uh, SB 171. Uh, that clause has been in the contracts well before CMMC right. came down the road. Well, and I guess maybe maybe a, a good example in the cybersecurity domain, you know, I was honored to be able to, uh, you know, co-author a post on the Lawfare blog with you recently on the subject of EPA's interpretation of one of their existing authorities uh, to, to, to read the term sanitary survey, which are these sort of annual, triannual surveys of water facilities to say cybersecurity is relevant to producing healthy and clean water. Therefore, sanitary surveys can include cybersecurity assessments. And uh, there were lawsuits and so on and so forth. That seems like a good example in the cybersecurity domain of something a little more ambiguous. A hundred percent. I'm so glad you brought that up. So let's just close out CMMC and that because I want to turn to the the, the rest of the sort of environment. So I think the government isn't even going to, wouldn't even necessarily have to rely upon that NDAA, National Defense Authorization uh, language from the FY2020 NDAA. They'll just say, no, this is straight contracting law, straight procurement, our procurement powers give us the right. And of course, what we're asking companies to do imposes a cost upon the companies. Um, but if you don't want to, if you don't want to bid on government contracts, you know, you right. don't like this isn't rules. keeping you from going fishing. It's just keeping exactly. you from getting a government contract, getting a government contract. Right. Okay. Okay. But almost parallel with the conservative efforts to um, overturn Chevron is a separate and so far quite successful conservative effort to limit the powers of regulatory agencies in other ways. 
and that is the so-called major question doctrine, which again, Jacob goes directly to the point again, in Civics 101 that you raised at the beginning, uh, delegation of power and separation of power. And um, the Supreme Court has adopted a now a doctrine that says that um, regulatory agencies cannot act on major questions unless Congress has been explicit in giving them that authority. And this uh, was uh, most recently implemented in a major case, uh, West Virginia versus EPA uh, 2022 um, decision. And um, the issue there had to do with the regulation of carbon emissions and a, a rule adopted by the EPA that uh, regulated, uh, basically was intended to address global warming through limits on, on carbon. And um, the Supreme Court said, wait a minute, uh, EPA, you are the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, global warming is a mi major environmental concern, but it is so major that we're not going to let you regulate it unless Congress explicitly gave you the power to regulate carbon emissions in order to decrease global warming. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, the court said on major questions, Regulatory agencies cannot act, and again, it's not a Chevron deference question. It's not, not directly related to the interpretation of the statute. There's no. It's not that there's an ambiguity. It's related. You can see because there's a gap in the statute. The statute doesn't say anything about global warming, mm -hmm. and the statute doesn't say anything about regulating carbon emissions. Therefore, even though it talks about pollution, and you could call mm -hmm. carbon emissions a pollution, we're not going to let you do that. The Supreme Court said because in order to go down that road and take on such a big issue. Um, Congress has to speak clearly right. and explicitly. And now, what does this have to do with cybersecurity? One of our major cybersecurity regulatory agencies today, at least when it comes to the protection of personal information, is the Federal Trade Commission. Mm -hmm. They are a de facto cybersecurity regulatory agency bringing enforcement actions against all kinds of companies who lose uh, data of their customers. And what is the authority that the FTC cites for this? They cite a statute last amended in 1934, i.e. a little before the internet, <laughs> a statute which has two words in it, unfair, deceptive. And it says that unfair or deceptive trade practices are illegal and on those two words, the FTC has hung its entire uh, cybersecurity regulatory enforcement, um, except under two statutes, one for banks and one for kids, where mm -hmm. Congress did give them explicit authority. But for the rest of the economy, uh, the, the, um, the FTC has been operating under these, this unfair and deceptive. I think they may be in trouble. Um, I like a lot of what the FTC has done. I, at some level, I, I think they, they took up a, a major issue that should have been taken up by somebody. But I think they're 
on thin ice now. Um, the case you allude to dealt with, um, which you and I wrote about, uh, dealt with a uh, water system. Our drinking water system um, is uh, obviously dependent upon information technology, but even more so dependent upon operational technology, uh, various kinds of industrial control systems, some of them relatively rudimentary, but many of them internet connected or right. networked in some way. And um, we, in fact, know, because CISA, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, told us in a public uh, announcement last fall that the Iranians, through the um, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, was into the industrial control systems of multiple U.S. drinking water systems. Right. Even before that announcement, the EPA sort of knew what was going on uh, and issued a letter to um, regulated water systems under the Clean Water Act, which requires uh, states to conduct surveys of the equipment and operations of drinking water systems to ensure that they are reliable and safe. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't say anything about cybersecurity. The EPA uh, said, well, but HOT, operational technology, fits within equipment and operations of water regulated water systems, and cybersecurity is a clear risk to the safety and availability of our drinking water. Therefore, these sanitary surveys, which must inspect the operational technology uh, or the operations and technology of drinking water systems, should include a consideration of their cybersecurity uh, status. And um, several uh, states and the uh, trade associations for the uh, water drinking water systems uh, sued, got the rule blocked temporarily, and ultimately the EPA withdrew it. Um, the the uh, challengers didn't directly invoke the uh, major question doctrine. They had said this was a rule. It wasn't an interpretation. The agency had to go through the whole complicated rulemaking process. They probably then would have challenged that too. But uh, the EPA ultimately withdrew the rule. And um, well, now, so, yeah, and so, so you see the situation, I guess, right. Jacob, just to close it out, where... We don't have, of course, a comprehensive cybersecurity law in the United States. We don't right. have a comprehensive privacy law. And we are not likely to get one, mm -hmm. that the current Congress is completely incapable. And Congress for the foreseeable future, I think, is completely incapable of adopting uh, comprehensive cybersecurity legislation for critical infrastructure, most of which, of course, is owned and operated by the private sector. Right. So in the absence of congressional action, the regulatory agencies are looking to their existing authorities, uh, some of which talk about safety, some of which talk about reliability, and trying to fit cybersecurity into safety and reliability. Um, the 
TSA, Transportation Security Administration, did it for pipelines. They actually, right. they're, they're the guys at the airports, obviously, doing the, the, the screening at the airports, but they also have authority over pipelines. And they have a whole lot of standards on pipeline safety and security. And they added cybersecurity to that. So far, it's stuck. And, they, and this is even mentioned in the national cyber strategy where they're like, where we have existing authorities, we'll pursue them aggressively. These sort of creative uh, interpretations of authorities where the statutes don't say anything exactly. about security. And sometimes exactly. they stick and sometimes they don't. Right. You know, obviously, like you mentioned, the procurement aspect is a bit of an X factor here because it's much more sort of on rails than these other yeah. situations. But you know, I, I cite you all the time where you've said that this sort of is how cybersecurity will uh, play out in the United States, because in the absence of comprehensive legislation, you're going to have to have this sector by sector. I think you've called it a crazy quilt of yep. cyber strategies yep. where they're all trying to, you know, yep. shove cyber into these various authorities. And yep. now with Chevron and major questions, you know, it's uh, it's pretty dicey out there. And by the way, you know, I, I think we always are going to have to have a sector by sector approach to cybersecurity. What is appropriate for a water system is different than what's appropriate for a railroad, which is different than what's appropriate for the aviation sector. Um, so we are going to have this sectoral approach. Um, in the best of all worlds, Congress would create some umbrella statute that made it clear that those regulatory agencies have authority also over cybersecurity, that's not likely to happen. So the agencies are looking at their existing authorities. Take another one, um, uh, hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, pretty much every hospital, health clinic, healthcare provider in the country is dependent upon Medicare and Medicaid payments. Uh, for income. Um, that's partly how we fund our healthcare system in, in the United States today is through right. Medicare and Medicaid. Medicaid, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, in the Department of Health and Human Services says, okay, you want our money, you got to meet certain standards. You got to have, um, certain, you got to follow certain building codes mm -hmm. uh, so the hospital doesn't catch on fire. Uh, you've got to have dietary standards. Um, you've got to have certain standards on uh, infections and cleanliness and all kinds of things. They actually say you actually have to follow a certain standard on paper, on records, but it's really referring to paper records. Probably in the next couple of months, CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is finally going to issue a, one of these so-called conditions of participation saying, hospitals, you're under attack. Uh, particularly by ransomware, but otherwise, uh, losing your electronic health records can jeopardize care uh, clearly, can have real life impact on, on, on people uh, if you can't access the records, not, not to mention all of the devices and equipment that's connected and possibly corruptible through a hostile attack. So uh, hospitals, if you want to keep getting federal money, You've got to meet certain cybersecurity standards. Oh, wow. Again, even though the relevant statutes on setting up Medicare and Medicaid don't say anything about cybersecurity. Um, yeah, there seems to be a common logical, you know, set of steps here, right? Where we're talking about- Agencies are, are looking. About, right. 
But this Supreme Court major question doctrine, more, more so even than the Chevron deference, um, I think the major question doctrine looms over all of that. I think you would see the administration moving even more quickly if it weren't for that doctrine. But they've said like, you know, they've said they're going to do it for uh, hospitals, which I think, again, is long overdue. You know, we, we've talked a lot about rulemaking on the show. Obviously, this is this conversation is heavily, you know, it orbits around rulemaking. The the is there any relation here to the Administrative Procedure Act specifically? So this is sort of the act that that governs the rulemaking process. If I, if I recall correctly, the APA says that inter, doesn't the APA say that interpretations are supposed to be by the courts to settle these matters? This feels like another wrinkle here. but So, yeah. So the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, been around for decades, says that the reviewing court shall decide all relevant questions of law. Except for and, Chevron. <laughs> and then it goes, on, it goes on to say that it shall set aside um, any agency action that is arbitrary, capricious, an abuse of discretion or not otherwise in accordance with law. But again, the reviewing court shall decide all relevant questions of law, which sounds a lot like Marbury versus Madison, 1803, a Supreme Court case, that it is the province of the courts to, to say what the law is. But I think um, the way the, the Supreme Court in Chevron squared the Administrative Procedure Act, and I think actually Chief Justice Roberts in a, in a case said, we're not violating the Administrative Procedure Act with Chevron. We are honoring the Administrative Procedure Act because um, we will decide the question of law. And the question of law is, this has been delegated to, has this been delegated to an agency? Right. And if it's been delegated to an agency by this gap, by leaving a gap or by creating an ambiguity, by setting up an agency to work out all the ambiguities in the statute, we're basically saying, okay, Congress, the law is you created this agency. You left it the authority to make all these fine-tuned decisions. So we are going to let that agency do the work that you gave to it. Right. And not and not to get too far off the reservation here, obviously, you know, we're going to link to a lot of resources so everybody can do their re reading. I came across something. Uh, let me know if I have this right. Something referred to as our deference, which would allow an agency to be the judge of whether the agency's regulation is accurate. So I can see the case here around why Chevron's such a big deal, because, OK, uh, the, the statute is ambiguous and then you're going to defer to the agency on what it means. And then when they come up with a regulation, you will defer to them again about that's whether right. their regulation is that's right. that's good. And that right. seems like a big jump from. Yeah, and that's and, and that's like. basically the argument against uh, Chevron. You can see how this gets kind Absolutely. of. Absolutely. Like, oh. No, no, no. Which is why I um, I can see both sides mm -hmm. of that case. Absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, I understand why statutes get written this way. On the other hand, if you accept the principle of Marbury versus Madison, and if you accept that line, 
in the Administrative Procedure Act that says that the reviewing court shall decide all relevant questions of law, um, then you could say, well, you know, okay, this isn't a transfer of new authority to the judiciary, striking down Chevron deference. It's in fact a reassertion of the proper role of the judiciary. Right. And that what we've had uh, since Chevron, and this is the argument that critics of Chevron make, what we've had since Chevron is a uh, surrender of constitutional power from the courts and from Congress to the executive branch. And now we need to reassert the correct balance, take away some of this discretion from the uh, executive branch or regulatory agencies, and either the courts will decide. Congress, of course, can always overrule. Congress can always say to the court, no, court, you were wrong, and then rewrite the statute to eliminate the gap or to eliminate the ambiguity. Which just, again, I, I believe that's a, an example of that that's sort of relevant to our audience is uh, the debate around the False Claims Act, where I believe there's some debate where the courts are saying that's not what they meant. And the authors of the False Claims Act have said, what are you doing? That's exactly what we meant. <laughs> well, that's right. And then that puts the burden on Congress, uh, right. then and the authors of the act to be explicit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the rebuttal to that, because every every one of these arguments has a rebuttal to it. Sure. Um, the rebuttal to that is, yeah, but just look how hard it is to get anything through Congress today. Right, exactly. Um, but then the rebuttal to that is, is the court saying, yeah, well, that's not our fault. Um, we're here to enforce the constitutional structure. And if Congress is a dysfunctional entity and can't pass laws uh, to clarify things that need clarification, you know, that's- sounds like, It sounds like a you problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, this whole thing is just so fascinating, but, you know, I, just to sort of recap is like you were saying, this has major, major implications uh, over rulemaking and interpretation and the role of, I mean, the, the very foundation of the separation of powers itself yep. and sort of upends 30, 40, if not more years of, yep. of precedent here, but off to the side, although it, is, it rhymes quite closely when you start talking about procurements, when you start talking about allowable costs, and you start talking about these very specific things, they sometimes don't feel, I think, um, as concrete to uh, the people who are uh, under the thumb of CMMC, if you will. But from a legal perspective, those are big exceptions to some of these other challenges to ambiguity and forcing regulation onto entities and things like that. And by the way, I mean, um... You don't have to be a supporter or opponent of CMMC2 to have an, you know, to to, to, to have an opinion on whether Chevron sure. and, and, and these cases apply here. Um, I mean, I've got my own issues from an academic perspective with CMMC 2.0. I, I, I would almost prefer a full government inspection. Right process. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen either. Yeah. But the, the question of is CMMC2 a good idea or not um, is a different question from uh, is it going to stand or fall against a legislative, uh, against a, a judicial challenge. Right. And I think my prediction would be 
and you can quote me on this four years from now or whenever the case comes out on CMMC 2.0, I think see, I, I think it would stand with, with, right. withstand judicial challenge. Right, right. Well, you know, this has been one of those things. We know that the decision from the Supreme Court, I believe, is expected on Chevron is expected in the summer. I'm not June. exactly sure. Yep. Yep. June? Okay, so yep. I'm sure Just that... Before. I'm, you know, I'm sure that people will see the news, they'll hear regulation, challenge, things like that. They'll put two and two together and they'll say, this sounds like it's related. So we wanted to have this conversation well ahead of time so we can reference back to it and say, um, big deal, definitely know about it, especially from a civics perspective. But there are some exceptions, like the seemingly like everything, the CMMC. You're, you're not some weird uh, edge cases here. You're not off the hook. Yeah. Contractors, <laughs> you, 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 you are not off the hook. Jacob right. has been telling you for years, you, you've got to comply <laughs> with SB 171. And uh, these cases on Chevron Doctrine are not going to be your get 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 off the hook yeah. uh, card. Yeah. Well, so any other sort of big picture predictions here? Let's say Chevron falls and uh, we have this massive change in the courts. Yeah, what does that spell for how cybersecurity writ large is going to play out, you know, from a, within the U.S. If to me, we talk about this all the time. It seems like regulation is one of the only. It's not an. It's it's an imperfect tool, but it's one of the few tools that uh, the government seems to have. And I feel like this definitely dulls that tool quite a bit. If uh, if they, yeah, I mean, one of the prem one one premise of the March twenty twenty three national cybersecurity strategy from the Biden administration, one of the premises of that was that we have a market failure. Right. Um, we're not getting the level of cybersecurity that we need and deserve, um, either from a government national security standpoint or from a commercial standpoint or from a personal privacy standpoint. So something has to change. Um, I think it's going to continue to happen incrementally. I think we're going to have this crazy quilt, this patchwork quilt of different laws uh, for the foreseeable future, um, some parts of it will stand, some parts will fall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Jason, you've been humoring me all week while I've been nerding out, learning about, uh, so, learning about Chevron and reading the papers. I've been, I've been, we've been, I've been messaging you through the week. Be like, did you read this footnote? It's so great. But yeah, you know, what do you, what from your perspective? Cause I just sort of dropped this on you, uh, like a week ago. So let's, yeah, let's talk about this from the outside perspective of somebody that when Jacob first messaged me about this and said, this is what we want to talk about on the show this week. I thought he made it up. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, you know, like sometimes it's like, you know, it's just that poke. Hey, buddy, you still interested in all this? Yeah, you know, yeah. like, you know, just poking yeah. to see if I'm on my toes, like, yeah. you know, to get the, the blinker fluid. Like, you know, when they send you in the, the auto zone to get the blinker fluid. Um, it's it's interesting to see how never in my life would I imagine that we were playing seven degrees to CMMC with fisheries and law and how that it would relate. So I got to sit for this entire, you know, conversation and I'm not very quiet very often on this show, right? Like I, and I like to be quiet on this one because I like to absorb it. There's, there's been a couple of occasions where it's happened. And what I absorbed was, is that like, there is just ripples and there are checks and balances in place that we just don't know about and that scratch surfaces. And then this one started, it, it's a snowball effect from 1983, right? Is that essentially what we're 1984. saying? 1984. Yep. Chevron, yeah, 1984. And it's just fascinating to see like how you can connect Kevin Bacon to CMMC, right? Like yeah. it's just, yeah. I, I, 
Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, well, yeah, just... I mean, we were talking about it in the green room beforehand. I think most people are now even, even in passing more familiar with rulemaking and administrative law, if through nothing else, than the, uh, the CMMC now being a part of so many people's lives. Yeah. It's how I learned. I, I learned about it by learning more about CMMC. So it's, it's interesting to see how we back into these very big picture sort of legal theory debates uh, with something as simple as, Hey, you should really turn on multi-factor authentication. If you didn't, if you didn't have research papers to back up what you were talking about, I would still think that this is fake. Right. Right. All right. Well, I mean, I hope that uh, this is a good summary. Like I said, we're going to link to uh, Jim's book, which there's going to be a new edition coming out soon. We're going to link to some of the uh, resources that we use to read up on what was going on. Uh, Jim will link to your profile and your, uh, your lawfare page. You're putting out tons of content that's super interesting. I've learned a ton from you over the years. I continue to follow and learn from your content. So thank you for uh, being so gracious with your time and giving us a, a crash course in yeah. in Supreme Court uh, legal theory and changes. I'd say it was a lot of fun. I'm not sure fun is the exact <laughs> word that one would apply to this, but... Uh... 